Chapter 15 Jack's whistle called the ship to muster. The crew groaned their way out of sleep, and dozens of bloodshot eyes squinted up into the morning light. Curses ascended like prayers, muttered to the rhythm and clomp of feet climbing topside. On deck, Jack's spirit showed no signs of a hangover. He hollered and stomped as lively as ever, kicking the odd buttock into sobriety and calling down hellfire to burn away sleepy eyes. Only the black and blue of his face gave away the night's misadventure. Get up here, Button! Move your feet, Art! Where the bloody hell is that nut? I'm here, Jack, muttered Nut from behind. Jack jumped in surprise. Yeah, ain't you always, he grumbled. Captain wants to talk to the lot of you. Someone get back down there and drag Tan out. Anybody seen Topper? A few hungover sailors shrugged. Seen him hanging out a window at the Scarlet Lady about midnight, called Art. From the look of the lass he was sugaring on, he'll wish he was dead. Jack muttered and fumed and chewed at his beard. After a few minutes, Jack was satisfied he'd gotten everyone there was to get. It turned out Topper wasn't dead after all, just sleeping in a barrel of dried mackerel. He smelled as if he'd bathed in a whale, and taken in combination with his usual odor, the effect was staggering. Jack made him stand downwind, then blew a couple of short toots on his whistle to let the captain know he was ready. The door to the captain's quarters opened and out stalked the old hawk, with a lecherous smile curled behind his whiskers. He walked to the balustrade and looked down at the crew gathered below. As he scanned the deck, his smile melted away, and he narrowed his eyes at Jack. When I ask to speak to the crew, I mean I wish to speak to all of them, Mr. Wagon. Aye, Captain. This is all of them. Jack wasn't barking now. He sounded almost sheepish, something Finn hadn't thought possible. Perhaps you can explain why my crew has vanished into the night? Creech's tone was sharp, his voice cold and angry. Oh, the war is recruiting folks, and some of the men decided to jump ship. Jack winced. The captain considered the situation, taking time to glare at everyone present in turn. Men that desert my crew will reap the benefit of their shallow loyalty. The price of desertion is dearly paid. The captain's eyes fell on Nut and lingered. Nut looked down at the deck and shrunk out of sight behind the mainmast. I suggest the rest of you consider that. The captain scowled down at them until he was satisfied that his threat had taken effect. Some of you have wondered at my decision to leave Savannah so quickly and so lightly laden. He pulled a folded parchment from his vest and held it up for all to see. This is the reason. I have been to a meeting with a political contact and have acquired a letter of mark. Several of the men raised their eyebrows in surprise. Most looked confused, including Finn. <laughs> I see from the looks of your ill-educated faces that some of you have no idea what this means. Which is, of course, no surprise. Well, this letter grants the rattlesnake license to seize any British vessel I see fit. I may claim it and its cargo as my own, provided I pay a thirty share to aid the Continental Congress in its war. The captain lifted his chin and preened with satisfaction. Seizing and claiming sounded a lot like piracy to Finn. She glanced around at the rest of the men and saw mixed reactions. Tan was grinning from ear to ear. Jack looked troubled. Nut was busy twirling a bit of rope around his foot. Topper was still standing downwind. His eyes were closed, and Finn was sure he was asleep standing up. This letter makes the rattlesnake a privateer. 
and it will make us all very rich men. The Atlantic is ripe, and this war is the season of its harvest. I aim to reap a lion's share. Whatever we lay claim to will be divided equally amongst the crew, of course. I didn't sign on the snake for fighting, Captain, yelled Art Thomason. Fighting? Who said anything about fighting? The captain smiled nervously. Our quarry is the British trade, not our navy. All we need to do is scare the daylight out of them and claim our reward. All very peaceable, I assure you. The prospect of a merchant crew simply handing over cargo and ship without any fuss seemed slight to Finn, and Art didn't look convinced either. Bartimaeus had been a pirate. Was this how his descent began? Nonsense, she told herself. This was perfectly legal, and Finn liked the sound of causing the British some trouble. The sooner the war was over, the sooner she'd be safe from British bounties, back home with Peter. If seizing merchant ships for Captain Tiberius Creech would quicken that end, then she was more than willing. We sail with the tide, said the captain. Make ready the ship. See to it we don't have any more deserters, Mr. Wagon. Not if I can help it, sir. Well, if you cannot help it, then perhaps a new first mate can. Creech looked down his nose at Jack like he was scolding a wayward child. Aye, sir. Jack turned to the crew and barked orders to get underway. Finn and Nut swung their way up into the rigging, and the rest of the men took to setting the rattlesnake free of its moorings. In short time, they were creeping away from Philadelphia and back toward the blue Atlantic. Finn once again forgot her worry. She enjoyed working the ship more than she could have dreamed possible, and not even her misgivings about the captain could ruin it. The ropes, the sails, the serpentine knots, even the language of the work delighted her. She cherished words like stanchion, clue, fiddleblock, gudgeon, leech, and luff. She rolled them around in her mouth and fell in love with them before she even knew their meanings. She spent the rest of the day bouncing around the ship, learning all she could from any man willing to teach. Every time Jack turned around, she was working at something different. He was so used to kicking the lazy out of sailors that he hardly knew what to make of Finn's unending delight in the ship's work. By sunset, the ship was running wide open, and Finn climbed up into the crow's nest to relish the day and find some peace away from the men. She felt like she was back at the orphanage again, chores always needing done, Jack stalking the deck, putting boot to buttock like a larger, hairier Hilda, and her hiding away above it all, trying to see what was waiting over the horizon. She missed Peter, though, and Nut was a poor substitute. Nut was a good friend of a quiet one, but there wasn't any fire in his company. Finn closed her eyes and imagined the woods near the river, Peter walking next to her, the sounds of him moving, breathing, his voice. She could see him in the moonlight as she played the fiddle, could see him rocking back and forth with the rhythm. She wanted that quiet place again more than even the sea and all its freedom. Then the memory of musket fire splintered her solace. The sounds of Bartimaeus and Betsy, the sounds of soldiers dying at the dinner table, the sounds of her life, her dreams, being torn away. War Woman, the Gazette had named her. It sounded ridiculous. It was ridiculous. But what had she expected? She'd killed six men. Now she was going to have to live with it. The only way back, the only way home, to Peter, to that beautiful green field in the country, was to win the war. Independence, taxes, politics. Meaningless. She just wanted to go home. Tiberius Creech had provided her with a way to assist in the achieving of that goal. A way to help end the war. 
She'd kill a hundred more soldiers if that was what it took. Nut's voice floated up from below, calling her to dinner. Finn called back and descended to the world at hand. While the rattlesnake prowled north along the coast, the crew passed the time talking up the change of occupation. Some men were ecstatic about the prospects of a privateer's life, often to the point of bloodthirst. Bill Stum, for one, became an intolerable braggart about all the British he intended to kill and how. Others, like Jack, didn't care for the business at all, and meant to follow orders as necessary, but had no intent of violence if it could be avoided. The two opinions formed an unspoken division in the crew. Those who relished the captain's letter of mark like a lusty treasure on the one hand, and those who eyed it warily on the other. Finn was torn. She had no reservations after she'd thought it over, but the company was much better on the conservative side. She liked Jack and looked up to him. She had the feeling that Tan looked forward to the challenge of privateering, but he was cautious and sided with Jack. Nut had no position, of course, except that of staying out of trouble, which to him meant staying clear of Bill and his ilk. I don't think Bill likes me none, he'd say, often to himself. Finn didn't care for Bill and the company he kept either, so it was just as well she kept her thoughts of privateering to herself to avoid the risk of alienating the few friends she had. Since she'd bested Bill in Philadelphia, they had not spoken, and he harbored a festering dislike for her. Nut was right about one thing. Bill was trouble, and staying clear of him was good counsel. Whenever there was any discord on the ship, Bill was sure to be at the center of it. Five days after leaving Philadelphia, the rattlesnake spotted the first prize of her new career, a small merchant ship bound for Boston and flying British colors. Creech stood at the rail and peered through his spyglass, grinning like a tiger. The ship was several miles off, and he ordered the rattlesnake to come around and close on her from the windward. Mr. Wagon, payday is in front of us. He snapped the spyglass closed. Load the guns and arm the crew. Jack shouted orders. Topper, take your crew and see to the guns. Arrest you. To the armory. Every man on deck jumped to life and headed below. They followed Topper to the gun deck or Jack to the armory. Finn ran to her berth and pulled out the violin case. Her heart thumped inside her chest like a war drum. She lifted the lid and stared at the fiddle, remembering how it sang in Bartimaeus's hands. She'd been afraid to pick it up since leaving Georgia, afraid she wouldn't remember how to play it. It wasn't the fiddle she had come for, though. Finn could hear the other thing calling to her, whispering for her to pick it up. She moved her eyes and there it lay, crouched in its case smiling up at her beautiful, wicked Betsy. Through the walls, Finn heard Jack yelling. She heard the clang of metal and the beat of running feet. Topper was shouting orders, loading the cannons. Finn grabbed Betsy, thrust it into her belt, and ran for the armory. Tan was there, issuing musket balls and powder. Finn took what she needed and grabbed a rusty cutlass. Know how to use that thing? asked Tan. The other men were sweating and dire with worry but Tan had a grin on his face that Finn sensed could give way to laughter at any moment. At first she thought he was making fun of her, but she was wrong. His grin wasn't a mockery, it was an exultation, a challenge thrown in the face of violence and whatever peril they might face. I can manage, said Finn with confidence. Then she turned and ran up onto the deck. The captain was at the helm staring at the British ship with greedy eyes. The other sailors arranged themselves along the rails. They loaded muskets and stared around at each other with worried looks. Finn looked for Nut and found him port astern, peering down the barrel of a pistol as if it were a spyglass. Give me that, Nut, 
She snatched it out of his hands. Finn quickly loaded it and handed it back to him. You know how to shoot it? Nut nodded. Good, and careful where it's pointing, she added. Finn turned to her own protection. She stuffed Betsy full of musket ball and packed the barrel, then stuck it into her belt and looked around. The other sailors had finished loading their weapons and were, one and all, looking intently at the British ship as it drew closer. All right, boys, shouted Jack. Do this right, no one gets hurt. All we got to do is scare them good. Just because you boys got guns don't mean you got to go firing them, here. Finn hoped it would be that easy. Jack walked to the hatch and called down. You ready down yonder, Topper? A muffled voice called back and Jack nodded. All's well, Captain. We're ready. Creech smiled. Loose a cannon across her deck, Mr. Wagon. Aye, aye, sir, said Jack. Topper, send her a hello from the snake. Once again, a muffled voice answered from below. Finn glanced at Nut and saw he had his fingers plugging up both ears. Topper sent his greeting. Boom! The ship shook and smoke poured out of the portside gunnel. A cannonball stabbed a hole in the British ship's mainsail and splashed into the water on the far side. Creech threw up his spyglass and peered through it. Jack returned to the captain, awaiting orders. The rest of the hands on deck stared at the prize and clutched the rail, white-knuckled. They were close enough to make out the sailors on board the other ship and could read her name as written on the stern, the whistle. Finn studied the ship and saw men working in the rigging, taking in sail. They're stopping, they are, said Jack, half to himself, half to the crew. Take in sail and prepare to board, ordered the captain. The crew jumped into action and brought in the sails. Art was at the helm and aimed the rattlesnake up alongside the whistle. Jack called for grapplers. Men hurled hooks at the rail of the whistle to pull her in close. The crewmen of the snake were silent and kept one hand on their pistols while they tended the tackle and hooks with the other. On the deck of the whistle, its captain paced the quarterdeck while his men stood about. Finn was surprised to see they looked more curious than scared or angry. There was a dull knock as the two ships bumped together, and Jack ordered a plank laid across the rails. Creech walked across the plank and hopped down onto the opposite deck, followed by Jack. Outrageous, said the captain of the whistle. I demand to know the meaning of this. The meaning, said Creech. Why, it's money, of course. I mean to have it. I'm Captain Tiberius Creech, and I hereby claim this vessel and its cargo. Are you mad? balked the whistle's captain. Indeed, said Creech. But my state of mind bears little influence to our present situation. He produced a document from his coat and waved it in front of the other captain's nose. This letter of mark grants me leave to seize any British ship and cargo that I so choose, mad or not. Creech's lips parted in an evil smile. Therefore, if you would, what did you say your name was? Burleson, Captain Burleson, said the man amid his obvious fluster. Very good, Captain Burleson. If you would order your men to transfer your cargo to my hold, we shall keep this transaction civil. Creech looked pleased with himself. By God, I will not, protested Captain Burleson. Creech's eyes narrowed to slits. He drew his pistol and leveled it at the man's face. Much like my madness, I assure you that God is of no relevance to our situation. If you insist, however, I will arrange for you to discuss it with him personally. Then, by God, I will have your hold and scuttle your ship. Creech little more than whispered it, but even the waves seemed to have hushed. Every ear heard him, 
and fingers all around crept closer to trigger and blade. Choose, Captain, before my madness makes up its own mind. The whistle's captain stood quivering for a moment, then spoke decisively. Do as he says. Open the holds. His men paused, considering whether or not he meant it. Then, hesitantly, they began to obey. Creech didn't move. The barrel of his pistol never wavered from the other man's face. For over an hour, they stood staring at each other, Creech occasionally smiling and chuckling to himself. The whistle's crew transferred their cargo and stores to the rattlesnake, while Finn and the rest of the crew stood at the rail with guns ready, making sure no one stepped out of line as the hold was laden. The tension was thick as fog. Finn was aware of every drop of sweat on her face, every slap of the waves against the hull, every breath of the men around her. Nut beside her shifted from foot to foot in nervous agitation. At last, the transfer was complete. Jack turned to the captain and nodded. As quickly as he had drawn it, Creech holstered his firearm and smiled widely at the captain in front of him. Thank you for your generosity, captain, and good day. Creech turned and trotted back across the plank. Jack followed and barked orders to loose the whistle from her hooks. Creech disappeared back into his quarters and the rattlesnake eased away. Finn looked back and saw the crew and captain of the whistle standing stone still on deck. They looked positively boggled. Finn smiled. Maybe the privateer business wasn't as bad as she'd feared. The seizure had gone smoothly, no blood drawn, and now they had a full hold of imported goods to sell for profit. Mad or not, Creech may indeed make them rich. Jack ordered the arms returned to the armory, and soon the sails were full again, and the whistle dwindled into the horizon. In the following days, Creech set his sights on seven more unwary merchant ships, and each time he managed to seize the cargo without the loss of a single life or even a drop of blood. Men couldn't have been more pleased, and Scuttlebutt aboard began to claim that Creech might not be such a sore captain after all. When they moored in Philadelphia again, three weeks after the whistle, they had a hold full of imports from Britain to unload. For two days, they wheeled round the capstan to lift up the ill-gotten fare and wheeled it round again to lower the crates to the wharf. Finn, too small to offer significant help at the capstan, fetched and delivered their take to the warehouses up and down the waterfront. After Creech paid the Congress for its share, the take was so large that he easily made good on his claim of riches by paying each sailor his due in bags of coins so large that Finn thought she'd have to spend half hers to even lift the sack. She bought some well-fitted boots, new trousers, a cedar sailor's trunk, and a leather vest that better concealed the secrets beneath her shirt. She ate well and drank well and spent money for which she had little use on frivolous things, and she took time to write, to tell Peter that she was safe and sure. In late April, they had news of the revolution. George Washington had chased the British out of Boston. Thomas Paine published Common Sense, and Finn bought a copy just like myriad others and steeled her will with its denouncement of monarchy and justification of democracy. The Americans were at war, and Finn felt she was moving in earnest to the end of her sojourn. The advent of open war raised the stakes for the rattlesnake, however. The Royal Navy was thicker along the coast, and the rattlesnake's reputation as a menace to the crown grew with every ship she seized. In late fall, they got underway from Charleston and prowled the coast along the Carolinas in search of a prize. Long days passed without sighting a target, and the crew grew restless in the downtime. Finn lay in her hammock on the gun deck, lazy in the heat of the day, while Tan and Jack sat nearby playing cards, and Nut slept, leaning against the bulkhead. 
Bill and several other sailors had gathered at the far end of the deck. They were laughing and discussing their plans for the next port call. Button, don't never play cards with Tan, grumbled Jack. He cheats. Tan looked at Finn and rolled his eyes. You can't stand another man to have good luck, can you? Jack harumphed. Don't start with me. I'm right and you know it. You mean about me cheating or about Creech? asked Tan. Hmm, both. What about Creech? asked Finn. Tan put down his cards and turned so he could face her. Jack's got himself all worked up like a woman because he thinks Creech's luck is due to run out. Finn opened her mouth to protest his comment about women, but remembered herself and snapped it closed. Now you'd think our fair and hairy first mate here might congratulate his crew for such a job well done. Jack patiently ignored him. But you'd be wrong. He prefers to think the only reason we're still safe and unbloodied is the good captain's run of luck. You done yet? asked Jack. Can you believe that, Finn? Just another superstitious sailor. Tan had a big grin on his face. He enjoyed teasing Jack and drew it out for all it was worth. The truth was that it wasn't just Jack. Many of the crew thought it was only a matter of time before their luck ran out. They'd come away too easily from all the ships they'd boarded. Not once had the business come to violence. You ever been on a privateer before, Jack? Finn asked. No, but I was on the Dancing Susan when she was taken by pirates off Martinique. It was no peaceful business, I can tell you. Half the crew was dead or bloodied for it was done. Bad business it is. Fifty men on the deck of a ship, all with blades and muskets and every one trying to kill the other. And cannons blowing holes the size of barrels in the bulkheads. Bad business. Worse there is. So we're a privateer, you say. For British eyes, we're no more than pirates and thieves. We've been lucky. And sure as the sun goes round, lucky don't stick. Finn expected Tan to tease him again, but he didn't. His grin was gone. The deck had become suddenly quiet, and Finn looked around to see that the other men had all stopped their business to listen to Jack. Even Bill Stum and his regulars were listening. Your deal, Jack, said Tan. Jack dealt the cards and people resumed their previous conversations. The schism that had been created when they turned to privateering had widened, and though unspoken, it was plainly written in the company the men kept. Those that had taken to the new work readily and wantonly were the captain's men through and through, and they no longer tolerated another man to speak ill of him. Bill Stum was their leader, and while none dared speak ill of Jack out of respect for his station as first mate, it was widely known that the captain favored Bill. Finn suspected Bill had eyes for Jack's job as soon as opportunity provided. As they slipped among the outer banks of North Carolina, the fears Jack had given voice to came a step closer to reality. A frigate of the Royal Navy came upon them by surprise as it slipped from behind the southern rise of an island. Jack ordered them to quarters, and before they could change tack and get the wind at their backs, the British were nearly in cannon range and testing their long nines against the distance. The Rattlesnake was by far the faster ship, and they made flight with ease. But coming face to face with the enemy and being the target of cannon shot made Finn's blood chill. They learned to be incredibly efficient at scaring smaller ships into compliance. Some men made an art of it. Tan had the knack of giving men the evil eye, and they'd quiver in their boots just to know his stare was upon them. Art Thomason paid a butcher in Baltimore to have blood splashed all over his clothes. He'd stand on deck as near the captured ship as he could, looking like he'd killed five men and bathed in their blood and he'd taunt waylaid soldiers with made-up stories of the men he'd sliced on the last ship to fall victim to the rattlesnake. 
Jack didn't need to put on a performance. He intimidated men by his very presence. All he needed to do was to stand near a man and look down at him to induce a panicky wave of shudders and obedience. Finn would wave Betsy about with cavalier flourishes to scare the sauce out of whatever poor tar happened to be standing in front of her. And secretly, she was coming to enjoy the heft of the gun in her hand. By summer, they'd taken only small prizes, and the captain was determined to fill his holds before setting into port again. When he spotted the kingfish on the horizon, he seized the opportunity. Finn joined Tan at the rail and peered out at the kingfish as they approached. It was large, certainly the largest ship they'd ever attempted. The double gun decks on her sides raised Finn's hackles. Only once or twice had the captain ever dared assail a ship that was anything more than meagerly armed, and each of those times the rattlesnake's twenty guns easily outclassed the ship they meant to seize. But the ship they were closing in on now was not only the equal of the rattlesnake, she was her superior and they weren't nearly as battle-ready as all their cannons and topside gunmen made them appear. The rattlesnake was built for a crew of eighty, but was manned by less than forty. There weren't enough men below to man the guns, but the kingfish didn't know that. If it came to cannon fire, they could only get off one full volley before Topper would be run ragged trying to reload. If it came to cannon fire, the rattlesnake couldn't win. That's a big ship, said Finn. Tan raised a worried eyebrow at her. Sure you can manage that cutlass? he asked. Finn said nothing. All right, boys, same drill, bigger fish, called Jack across the deck. Play your cards, keep your faces on, she'll fry up like all the others. He didn't look as sure of himself as he normally did. Things that scared Jack Wagon were certain to make other men faint cold. Finn prayed it wasn't fear she saw. The captain exited his quarters and appraised the ship through his spyglass. Jack approached him, and they spoke in hushed words. Finn couldn't hear what they said, but Creech didn't look happy about it. When they finished, Jack looked more troubled than he had before. Swing us around and give us a shot, said the captain to the helm. Art spun the wheel and the ship lurched to starboard. Ready the guns, Jack yelled down to Topper. The rattlesnake tacked around until her gunnels were parallel to the kingfish, offering a clear shot off the starboard. Let fly, Topper, yelled Jack and seconds later the ship jerked and shuddered as Topper sent a ball across the deck of the other ship. The men on the deck of the kingfish scurried about, some to the rigging, some heading below, but they didn't take in sail, and the ship showed no signs of slowing. Warn her a second time, said the captain, and Jack relayed the order. Once again a cannon boomed and the ship quivered. The shot sailed over the kingfish and raised a plume of water on the far side. Finn looked around. The crew was tense, scared. They'd never had to fire twice. If the kingfish tacked around, they might fire back. Finn looked at Tan. He was grinning in anticipation. He noticed her and winked. Tan loved it. Finn looked away and wrung the railing. Ready a volley, ordered Creech. Captain, said Jack with a worried look. You heard me, you blithering idiot. Ready a volley and prepare to fire. Aye, sir, said Jack. He turned to the hatch and relayed the order down to Topper. Jack was sweating. Topper called up that the guns were standing by. Folly away, snarled Creech. Jack hesitated. The captain's face turned red with anger. I said volley away! Jack didn't move. The captain drew his pistol and cocked back the hammer. Mr. Wagon, I assure you I will kill you if you do not obey. Jack didn't answer. He raised a swarthy arm and pointed behind the captain. The kingfish was taking in sail. 
The captain's eyes flashed at Jack, and he put his firearm away. Prepare to board, Creech whispered. Jack didn't look at him or answer. He turned and prodded the crew into action. Along the rail, men readied their hooks and drew cutlasses. Finn pulled Betsy from her belt. On the deck of the kingfish, its sailors stood ready with blades drawn. Murmurs of trepidation ran across the deck of the rattlesnake. They'd never been opposed by armed men. These looked not only armed, but ready to fight. Beside her, Tan bounced slightly on his toes. She looked around for Nut and found him against the far rail. He didn't look scared, for which Finn was grateful. If the seizure turned to fighting, she hoped Nut would stay safe aboard the rattlesnake. Jack called out the order and the hooks flew. Creech stood at the rail and shouted across to the kingfish, Call out your captain! A large sailor on the kingfish conversed briefly with two of his fellows, nodded, and disappeared into the cabin. Creech smiled with satisfaction and ordered a plank laid across the rail. The sailors aboard the kingfish flourished their cutlasses and glared at the opposition. Tan was making eyes at one of them, twitching his head like a maniac. Dread ran through Finn's veins. The crews of both ships stared at each other in nervous anticipation while waiting for the captain of the kingfish. It was odd that the captain wasn't already on deck given the circumstance. Then the cabin door swung open, but from the door came no captain. Out from the bowels of the kingfish issued a red vomit of British soldiers. Finn snatched Betsy into the air and pointed her puckered barrel at the redcoats arraying themselves across the opposite deck. Muskets lifted in answer. Sabres wavered in the air, and pistols dared the silence to break. Hold your peace, cried Jack. Which crew he ordered, none could say. Tan glanced from Jack to the kingfish and back, trying to anticipate the next move. Nut cowered behind the mast. Finn was lost in a sea of red visions. She smelled the burning flesh of a soldier from a world away, felt a cold knife on her back. She felt a one-eyed man breathing into her face as she thrust a knife. Murder. She saw dead men lying across the dining table, blood spreading across its waxy grain. Ruin. Fear and anger welled within her. She squeezed the trigger and Betsy roared. A cloud of smoke erupted from the barrel and screams arose. A man lay dead across the rail of the kingfish. Then musket fire exploded toward the rattlesnake. Tan leapt the rail, rapier drawn, and began his ruinous work with unsettling grace. The crew fired their muskets and followed Tan. Finn cast Betsy down as if the weapon had burned her. She drew her cutlass and ran after them. A soldier charged with his bayonet, and Finn clubbed it aside. She swung the blade and he fell, cloven and bloodied. Aboard the rattlesnake, Jack stood stone-like, firing pistol shot as fast as he could load it, while he called up curses and hurled them at the British, as if they might flee by the foulness of his insults alone. Creech retreated into his cabin. Finn's blood was on fire. She lavished vengeance upon her attackers like kisses upon a long-missed lover. Jack shouted in the distance, but Finn paid no heed. She cut down a soldier and licked the sweat from her lips. She looked around for Tan, but he was gone. The deck of the kingfish was choked with bodies, most British, but some she recognized as her own shipmates. Jack shouted again from somewhere behind her, but she couldn't make out his words. A hand grabbed her and spun her around. It was Tan. Come on, he shouted at her as he pointed back at the rattlesnake. Bloody hell, Button! Get over here! You can join the Limeys in Davy Jones' locker! Jack yelled. She cast another glance back at the kingfish and saw that Tan and the crew had barricaded the hatches and trapped the British below before reinforcements could make it topside. The soldiers below decks shouted and beat at the hatches. Finn turned and bounded across the deck. Now, Topper! shouted Jack. 
and the cannons fired into the belly of the kingfish. The rattlesnake rocked hard to port, and Finn grabbed the rail to avoid falling. Sounds of splintering wood and breaking glass echoed through the kingfish as the cannon shots tore through her amidships and left holes the size of barrels down her sheer line. Seawater rushed into her, and the angry shouts of the trapped British turned into screams and cries for help. The rattlesnake righted itself, and Jack shouted, Reload! Creech emerged from hiding, livid with anger. What are you doing? Sending these bastards to the dark below as soon as Topper loads a volley, growled Jack. We'll do no such thing until we've plundered her hold. We was lucky enough we got em by surprise afore the entire company made it topside. There's more soldiers below decks. I ain't waiting around for em to bang their way up and bleed us. Topper called up that the guns were ready. Stand down, Mr. Wagon. Jack looked at the captain with a stern eye and shook his head. Fire! yelled Jack, and the guns blew. The kingfish shuddered and began to crumple. As it slipped into the sea, Tan ran down the starboard rail, cutting away the hooks, before they could drag the rattlesnake down as well. The captain and Jack faced each other in cold silence, as the soldiers and crew of the kingfish sunk to an icy grave. No one spoke a word. All eyes were on the captain. Jack had disobeyed a direct order. See Mr. Wagon to the brig. Put him in irons, said Creech to no one in particular. In all likelihood, he hadn't any idea who to order. It was Jack who ran his ship, and it was Jack who commanded the men. The crew looked around at each other, each hoping another would be the one to step forward and fulfill the order. Bill stood in the background, smiling. No one moved. The captain bristled with anger. You, Mr. Bow, is it not? he asked, pointing his chin at Tan. Have this mutineer locked away. Tan looked to Jack, who nodded, before answering. Aye, sir. He sounded uncertain for the first time since Finn had known him. He motioned for Jack to come with him, and proceeded below decks to the brig. As for the rest of you cowards, an example will be made. Sir, it was an ambush, protested Art. We wasn't prepared for no fight with British regulars. A trap it was, what with them waiting below. Do you presume to think, spat Creech with disgust, that I did not know there were soldiers aboard? Creech lifted a dangerous eyebrow at Art. He couldn't have known. He simply didn't care. Sacking the ship of the British Navy and selling off her arms and hold would have turned us more profit than any three pitiful merchant ships. But now, thanks to you lot, our wages are locked safely away at the bottom of the Atlantic. Creech glared around at the crew. He stuck out a crooked, bony finger and pointed it at a man hiding around the corner of the cabin. Bring him, Creech ordered. No one moved. Creech glared around the deck, waiting for his order to be followed. He marked carefully each sailor that defied him, including Finn. Then he spat on the deck and rushed to the man hiding behind the cabin bulkhead. Creech disappeared around the corner as the man shrank away, then reappeared, dragging the man across the deck by his arm. It was nut. The captain threw him against the mainmast, and Nut crumpled into a pile at its foot, quivering and crying. Finn hadn't believed Creech was strong enough to drag a man and throw him like that, but she'd just seen it with her own eyes. He tied Nut's hands fast to the mast. Before she knew what she was doing, Finn stepped forward and shouted, Stop it! What are you doing to him? Creech's head snapped toward her, and he pulled his pistol out. I have had enough mutineering for today, and I will not hesitate to shoot dead the next man that questions me. He cocked back the hammer. 
Finn was horrified, and Creech was not bluffing. He would shoot her. She was certain of it. She shook her head and stepped back. Creech stuck his gun back into his belt and turned to the stowage locker behind the mast. He reached inside and brought out a long, stiff cane. Nut pulled and twisted at his bonds in a hopeless attempt at flight. The captain walked slowly around Nut, smiling gently as at an animal caught in a trap. Then he raised his arm and brought the cane down on Nut's back. It made a sharp smacking noise, like the slap of a wave against the hull. Nut cried out. Again and again, Creech let fall the cane, and each time Nut's screams pierced the air. Finn flung herself to the rail and dared not turn to watch. She couldn't bear it. She convinced herself many times over that she had to run to his aid, and cowered as many times from the threat of Creech's pistol. She wailed inside for Nut, and fanned into flames a hatred for the rattlesnake's tyrant. At last the blows and screams ended. Creech raised the cane like a sword and pinwheeled slowly around the deck, making sure to point it at each sailor. Such is the price of mutiny, he said with a nod toward Nut's unconscious and bloody body. I've no interest in damaging a good deckhand, but this half-wit will pay dearly for any breach of my command. His blood is on your heads. Then Creech cast the cane down upon Nut's still body and stalked back through the cabin door. Finn ran to Nut. His back was striped and split open, cut to the bone. She rolled him over and attempted to rouse him, but could not. Take him, she whispered. She stood and took hold of him as the men around lifted his body and slowly marched below decks to tend him.